Welcome to the La 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 Let Me Explain podcast and today's episode is a prison and addiction special and I have the most perfect guests uh, for this particular topic, Lisa and Elliot from at Blue Bag Life, which is an amazing account which offers real perspectives uh, around addiction and prison life and relationships in prison and outside of prison and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and it comes from a really sensitive and, and empathetic perspective, I guess. I, I, I really love the perspective that you guys uh, come from. So can you tell, tell people who haven't followed your account, can you tell them a little bit more about what you do? Yeah. Firstly, I just wanted to say thank you for having us. Mm. Oh my God, thank you for coming. I feel literally honoured that you agreed to come, honestly. We're really excited. Yeah, um, yeah the account was just a personal account at first. Um, the usual dinners and sunsets and dog paws and cobwebs and whatever, whatever you usually find on Instagram. Um, and then I landed in my mother's house. I got her keys after her death and there I was yeah I was in her house for the first time on my own and that's when all the drug paraphernalia was rising to the surface she was addicted to heroin and I didn't really know what to do uh, I, I'd always documented everything so I just picked up a camera and I thought the council were going to come soon and whitewash it all away and I just wanted as much evidence of how she may have lived her life because I wasn't raised by her and I put it onto my Instagram account and changed the name to blue bag life because of all these little bits of blue plastic that I found around the house when I was first with my partner Elliot who you'll speak to in a minute um, I thought they were really rubbish shopping bags that were disintegrating you know the ones you get at the shop mm. um, blue plastic bags but it's actually what his drugs were coming in at the time. Um, yeah, and then he began to talk from prison. Mm. But that's kind of jumping forward a so little when you, bit. So when you started the account, was Elliot was in prison? Yeah, so Lisa had her personal account um, before, but she said it was just a standard Instagram account of selfies and food and animals and stuff like that. But then once her mother passed away and she started putting the photos on there and, um, and talking a bit about this stuff... I started to do bits of writing from my prison cell, which I'd read to her over the prison phone. She'd then transcribe the calls of my writing and put it on the on the page, um, you know, with various images of me from the past. If we rewind a little bit before I went to prison, uh, me and Lisa met, I was clean. Um, she'd been addicted to alcohol, but was sober. I relapsed. Um, so clean from what? Heroin and crack cocaine. So I was addicted to drugs from quite a young age, like 12 years old I started using drugs. And by the age of 15, I was addicted to heroin. Um, various periods of, you know, sobriety and functionality. But after we'd been together for a few months, I relapsed, hit it at first. And then inevitably the chaos came out and... Um, yeah, it just got really, really dark and started turning to crime and eventually ended up in prison. And it was from prison that my recovery began. And part of it was blue bag life. Right. How long were you inside for? Two years and eight months. Do you mind me asking what your crime was? Drug dealing, conspiracy to supply class A drugs. Right. And, but you were dealing the drugs in order to be able to take to afford to take oh, yeah, them. don't get it twisted there was no Lamborghini no mansion you know I was sleeping in a battered Ford per uh, Peugeot 206 um, running drugs up and down the M11 from London 
um, sticking them in my arm all day. I wasn't making money. I was getting paid in drugs. Hmm. And how do, can we go back a little bit to how, if, if you're all right with talking about that, yeah, of course, yeah. in terms of how the addiction started? Because that's very young to be mm. exposed to that kind of lifestyle. What, so I'm assuming that your childhood was difficult. Do you know what? It started all right. It was um, just a normal family, you know, quite a big family. I had three older brothers and my dad's and my mum, quite a masculine household. Um, so I wasn't really encouraged to talk about emotions and vulnerabilities. You know, it was all right to get in trouble. Like when I first got nicked, I was 14 for breaking into a school and stealing some stuff. My dad took me to the police station and just took the piss out of me and made a laugh the whole day. You know, it was like a fun day out with my dad rather than a life lesson. Mm. Um but, you know, to show emotions and, and, and vulnerabilities and, and talk about how I was scared about my anxiety and whatever else, that, that was more difficult for me. It was easier to just take the piss out of things and, um, and yeah, get into trouble. So I started using drugs in my teenage years. It was like, you know, smoking weeds. My parents drank a bit at home, so I'd drink beer with my dad. And it just kind of progressed. So by the age of 14, I was raving, taking pills and speed and, and cocaine and stuff like that. And by the age of 15... I slipped into heroin because of some older ravers I was hanging around with um, and the girl I was with at the time. Um, it's interesting because heroin is not really a rave drug. I mean, I don't, how old are you? I'm 29. So I know it's not a rave drug, but in my experience, a lot of jaded ravers who have been through the rave scene and yeah. get a bit older, some of them <clears> kind of go off on that tangent, you know, squat life and yeah. things like that. And what comes with that is, you know, the more street drug type stuff rather than the party drugs. So I think the gateway isn't, soft drugs the gateway is trauma mental health yeah anxiety um and whatever else the the softer drugs are just a natural progression if you are going to go into harder drugs in my experience people that aren't using drugs to self-medicate for anything and just using from a good time don't generally t- tend to progress and also you know you're not gonna wake up one day i didn't wake up and suddenly decide i was going to pick up class a drugs it, it was me working my way through it until i found something that did numb any kind of pain that i felt which mm. for me was uh, mental health and not being able to talk about uh, mental illness which was i was diagnosed with mm, that's very really interesting and you you were an addict and is that drugs as well or alcohol alone i prefer to say i was addicted to alcohol um than label myself an addict um started at a young age it, i suppose it's a lot more accept- it's a lot more acceptable isn't it to be mm. drinking so I didn't pay attention to how much I was drinking. I just knew that when a party ended somewhere else, I'd seek out the next one and the next one and the next one until I'd become quite suicidal. Um, I had my own mental health issues. And I suppose I always wanted to be like my mother because she was absent and I only ever saw her drinking. She didn't use heroin around me. So I'd see her at parties and dancing on tables and just think she was some kind of Madonna or Mm. something. And yeah, it it just really progressed and got out of control. But everybody loved me when I was drinking and I felt like I was a better version of myself and that I was boring without alcohol. And now I'm two and a half years sober. It, It took quite a long time to be able to be at parties, be at raves. We work at uh, music festivals and to be able to go to these festivals where everyone's drinking and doing drugs and f- seeking out areas where you can have a sober, good time. Uh, <laughs> it's a very different experience. Yeah, it must be. So, that's, I mean, it's, I think it's something 
that we uh, we've discussed that actually on this podcast before which is that there's this expectation you know like if you go out for, for with a group of people who might not know your history there's this oh have a drink go on you know please no. have a drink like people don't want to drink around people who aren't drinking and so they think that it's in, uh, okay to encourage other people to do it so i think it's being a you know trying to recover from alcohol is so much more challenging mm. i mean it's not i mean recovering from drugs is extremely challenging but the fact that alcohol is so widely used and accepted is mm. yeah must be so hard i've had people say to me when they realize i'm not drinking oh your life must be so boring mm. and i just think it's not boring at all it's very clear i feel more um, directed in where i want to go i don't have to spend days in bed recovering from a hangover um, and my mental health has never been better and so I'm working it. Yeah. Yeah. And w- but what you two are doing is actually amazing at the moment. So I know you've just done a TED talk mm. all about what was the subject of your TED talk? So it's called Prison and Addiction, the Undoing of Shame. And it's basically talking about, you know, the shame that's ingrained into us and society when we talk about things like not just addiction and prison, but the things that underlie those issues like mental health, trauma, um, anything that we're kind of told we're not supposed to talk about, which was my experience throughout my life you know we need to undo that in society um plus loads of other little bits as well that we spoke about Mm. but that is amazing and you're also so do you work with people currently who are in prison yeah um i talk to people a lot about hope in prison Um, i'm helping with soft touch arts in leicester painting murals in healthcare, and we're organizing an exhibition for people who have made artwork in prison uh, doing so much just being able to wander around on wings and and talking to people about the things that they want to do it, I mean I'm buzzing from it actually mm. just to be able to make someone's time a little better to be able to take them out of their cell for an hour and talk to them about their poetry uh, I find it invaluable Mm. We recently went into a young offenders institution, actually, which was powerful for me, for one, because it was the first time I'd been back uh, into a prison properly since I got out. Mm. And we ran these writing workshops and, you know, at least I think almost a quarter of the kids in this young offenders institution from the age of 15 to 18 are in for murder. So a lot of them are starting life sentences, uh, you know, 20, 30 years minimum. And from talking to them and then writing about their experiences... The common theme was that from a young age, they'd been excluded from mainstream education, pushed aside based on their behaviour without anybody saying that what's really going on there, how yeah. do you feel? And there was one point where me and Lisa had like a class of like eight lads who were, all, you know, some were starting life sentences, some were in for really serious crimes, and all of them had their heads down, pen on paper, writing, and not a sound was being made, when mm. earlier they'd been really disruptive and stuff. And I just thought to myself, like... All of these kids have been given up on by mainstream education. Like Teachers have probably never had one of these kids working like this, let alone a whole group of them. So where is it that we're going wrong? Um, and why is, is me, like this, this ex-addict from prison, and, and my partner, Lisa, who, who's a teacher, how are we able to get these kids to do it when mainstream education hasn't? Do you know mm. what I mean? And it's, it's really eye-opening. Um, yeah. It's really sad, isn't it? The system is so fucked. Like... I mean, you say that and, and I mean, the obvious answer to that is because of austerity and cuts. And if you are a teacher and you've got 30 children in your class and you've got one of them who is stopping the rest of them from learning, <clears throat> then, you know, I, I think it can be, the you know, very black and white. 
get that kid out because we don't want the other 29 to be affected but then the ramifications for that one child yeah. which then do go on to affect other children in the community and around them and in school is 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 absolutely huge it's mm. a whole system change that needs to happen exactly and imagine every one of these children almost uh, young men every one of these young men have been expelled from school almost every single one yeah. mm. and then that was all of them we spoke to wasn't yeah it? and usually at school they'd just walk out of the classroom but here they are in the young offenders institute and they're locked into that classroom with yeah. us they're bouncing off of the walls mm. they're literally it's the end of the road for the naughty kids at school yeah that, that was me at school i got kicked out of school I, I, my my you know my dysfunctional thinking and emotions it manifested as dysfunctional behaviors you know because i didn't know how else to kind of i couldn't articulate how i felt therefore mm. i just acted out in different ways so yeah, it is the end of the road for the naughty kids like a prison cell or a classroom and um the thing is that really gets me is that in prison like I've, I've looked at the statistics before our ted talk we spoke about it in the ted talk and i looked at all of these these figures and people with mental health issues trauma addiction issues uh, people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds, people from low-income areas, people with disabilities, all of them are overrepresented in the UK prison system, which means there's like a bigger proportion of those types of people in prison than there is out in society, which tells me that as a society, we're locking people up who don't fit a mould, yeah. which is scary. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you... I, I always highly recommend the Johan Hari and Joe Rogan podcast mm. to everybody because he looks at how drugs and addiction are, are dealt with in different countries. And we have always um, demonised and criminalised yeah. drugs and drug addicts. And instead of taking a sensitive approach, which they do in some countries like Portugal and Switzerland, their model is so much more effective than ours. Mm. Because what we do is, 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 is literally fucking nonsense. Because when you understand addiction in terms of it being an unmet need, and actually anybody who's an addict, there's are people that we need to care for and love and support and um, but what we do is we go fuck you you've been taking heroin you need to now get a criminal record mm. which is going to prevent you from being able to get access to the same yeah. jobs as everybody else and uh, you know we might give you a fine or something like that which is so fucking counterproductive um well, you know we, we push them underground which makes needle use less, you know, they might be sharing needles or not have access to safe means to, to, to take the drugs. But it's just such a flawed system because that's not the way to stop addicts. Mm. Actually, the best way is to decriminalise drugs yeah, and decriminalise addiction. Um, but we're just, we're, never, I mean, we're nowhere near that's there. That's a whole other topic, isn't it? For a, yeah, but the hypocrisy of it gets me, you know, the same people that demonise those with illegal drug issues, the same people that are promoting put in a different substance into your body as much as you possibly can that being alcohol mm. you know what i mean and alcohol is physically more damaging socially more damaging financially more damaging and it's just yeah double standards and it's never backed up by scientific research or logic it's just you know age old like a witch hunt against yeah. addicts you know yeah, what i mean it is i mean all all research says that actually the best method would be to not to decriminalize all drugs should be decriminalized it's as simple as that we were walking through a tunnel in King's Cross the other day and it was a gin tunnel. I don't know if you've experienced this. Yeah, I don't know if it's still there, uh, but it was, it was something else. Yeah. On the floor, there was vinyls of cucumbers. Um, then there was gin stuff all over the wall. Apparently it was gin scented, but I couldn't smell that. And... I was just saying to Elliot, imagine if this was a crack or smack yeah. tunnel and it could be leading you to your relapse. That's behind um, King's Cross. 
yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of all places. Yeah. It's just thinking about how things are advertised as mm. well. So it's okay to have in shops cards and bags that say gin dependent woman, but mm. you change that for smack and it's not so funny. Mm. Yeah, you're so right. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? It's gambling as well. There's been a lot of stuff in the mm. um, news recently about how um, I think it's somewhat thing like Betfred has been given the um, the Premier League, a number of Premier League games, but people can only watch them online if they've put a bet on first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, how have the government allowed this to happen? You're literally encouraging people to gamble. And I mean, my dad's a gambling addict. And when we first um, discovered that he was a gambling addict, it was, uh, we didn't know, we thought he was on crack because the way that his behaviour was, he'd lost all his money. Mm. He was sitting in the dark because he hadn't paid his electric bill. He was not eating. Uh, his whole world was just revolved around, you know, he was in significant amounts of debt. And, and and we knew that he was something was going on. We knew that there was an addiction, but we it didn't even occur to us that it was gambling. We thought it must. Be, I mean, he's an alcoholic as well now, um, but we thought it must be drugs because the significant impact that it's had on his his, his him not only his life but his, him physically. Mm. And when we discovered that it was gambling, and and we kind of you know spoke to people and said actually we figured it out. We found him in the betting shop. It's all come out. People are like oh well, thank fuck, it's not drugs or alcohol. And it's like, well, addiction is addiction is addiction. Yeah. You know, it's, it doesn't actually matter what the substance is. If it's harming your life and you're chasing this thing, then then it's if it's a problem, it's a problem. Yeah, whatever the symptom is, the, the deep thing is the addiction itself. Like, I've been addicted to not just drugs in my life, but alcohol, gambling, you know, sex, um, you know, anything, work. You, like me, as the kind of person I am, I know that... I think you said that earlier, addiction is a lack of, you know, it's that thing of searching for something, chasing something, whatever it is to fill some kind of internal void that, I don't know, I always felt like everyone else had the manual for life and I didn't have it. And then when I took drugs and took heroin for the first time, I felt like I found it, you know, I found mm. the thing that helps me do life. Mm. We have to remember also that there's a lot of people that don't have a problem with having an addiction, like my mm. mother just did not want help. She said, I, I love taking drugs, mm. I love heroin, um, I don't need help. Uh, whereas we always feel like, so I always felt like I had to be someone that mm. saves people. Um, and she just didn't want it. And I mm. couldn't comprehend that. And also I tried to help a couple of lads on the street mm. who were stumbling over themselves. Um, and because I was helping them, they thought I was a policewoman. Um, and they mm. were just going, why are you so interested in us? No mm. one's interested in us. Yeah. It might, there must be an ulterior motive. And then they started to get a bit aggressive. And Elliot said, remember that not everyone needs that, needs help. It's, I wonder what I was thinking when you just said that about your mum. Was it that she accepted that she was an addict and she was okay with that? Or was it that she was in denial about being an addict? Oh, she was full out in the open about it. I mean... She did hide in her basement flat for most of her life when she wasn't travelling around the world when she was well. Um, but she invited a lot of people into her home to use drugs there. And she loved it. She mm. said, why, why do I need anything else? It makes me feel the way I want to feel. She was always into acid and escaping reality. But she wanted to. And I never got to know why, what she was actually running from. Uh, she was a beautiful woman. Um, I don't hate her for not being able to raise me. I'd always had this kind of bitterness that she chose it, heroin and, and drink and whatever she could get her hands on over me. But 
being with Elliot and being so close to it, I realised, because I felt like it was his mistress, you mm. know. And I had a deeper understanding. When he, when he was there, not able to give up when he wanted to, and I could see that struggle, and he was holding my ankles just desperate at points, wanting to give it up, but... I wasn't able to help him. Love no. is love just isn't enough, is it? No. Sometimes you need professional help, you need a lot of things and Yeah. But yet you you're unable to speak out about it because jobs and yeah. stigma and you know so many other things. Yeah. I mean uh, yeah, you're so right. It's uh, and, and actually it's interesting. Do you think that the fact that you had had your experiences with addiction helped you to stay around and 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 work through that relationship and and, st and stick with Elliot through that because I think a lot of people if they've been going out with someone who wasn't a heroin addict and then he suddenly relapsed and all the, you're getting all these behaviors a lot of people would have stopped given up at that point regardless of how strong the love was or anything else I think with my mother I was so used to covering over it so for instance when we were at a recovery group and I first met Elliot and I thought he was there for alcohol. When he told me it was heroin, I just, I didn't even really take it in because I was so used to brushing over it. Um, I left Elliot before prison when it got too much and when I realised I was unsafe. And I think that's really important to point out because mm. there's so many people that go, I will stay with them till the bitter end mm. um, and out of love. I don't want to leave him because of he might feel abandoned. He's got a lot of trouble in his life. When I realised I was terribly unsafe and my mental health was an all-time low, I didn't even care about myself, but I knew that I had to leave. And I went travelling for around five months across Asia. Not everyone's able to do that. I had funding for an exhibition in, in Hong Kong at the right <laughs> time. Um, but I just went mm. and I, had, I wasn't drinking throughout uh, Elliot's using. I was documenting what was happening. Mm. But across Asia I, completely, Asia, I completely let it go and drank and parted and... I think I needed to let it out. And that's when I found out that Elliot had been... Um, arrested and, and put into prison right and was did, did you carry on using them when you went into prison or was that a kind of was that a relief at that time because that was like shit now I have to stop um I mean initially I wasn't ready to give up because you know I, I was literally plucked off the M11 and, and nicked and remanded and you know um and that change doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't mm. suddenly happen. Oh, wow, it's, it's, a, it's an epiphany. You know, I want to get clean. Obviously, I knew that I, I didn't want to carry on using. And, you know, I, I remember saying to someone, like, in the weeks before I got nicked, you know, this is only going to end with me either dead or going to jail. And, um, and yeah, I, I'm glad that I went to jail in the, initially. And I remember sitting in the police cell before going to court and just thinking, you know, thank God that I don't have to rush about and deliver stuff all day long because it was really, it was taking its toll on, on my health uh, and my mental health. Um, the first six months of my sentence, I was still taking drugs in prison. Um, you know, put a drug addict into an institution like prison that is saturated with drugs mm. and other criminals. And, uh, you know, it's not even a punishment. You know, a drug addict locked into somewhere with loads of drugs. It's, if anything, that's something a drug addict wants. Yeah. You know, so I found it difficult to get clean initially. Had a few fights, got in some trouble, was taking drugs. And then after six months, me and Lisa had developed our relationship again. 
uh, through letters and phone calls and blue bag life had started and I stopped taking drugs after after those six months, did my detox from methadone, um, started to access counselling for mental health issues, got put on some medication and just slowly worked through everything that, you know, all the wreckage of the past. Mm. Which involved a lot of lies because with addiction we know comes yeah. the lying. Mm. At the beginning of him using spice again in prison I thought he was clean and that we were uh, living in, in truth, you know, mm. uh, but it's not that easy. And spice is yeah. so fucking destructive, isn't it? Mm. So spice is like a new, they say new, but I think it's been around for quite a while now. Mm. Um, but it is mainly concentrated in prisons, isn't it? It's yeah. not really something that you would get necessarily on the outside. It's big in the homeless communities, but yeah, in prisons, it's huge. It's the main drug, and that's because it's so easy to smuggle in. It comes as a liquid which can be sprayed or applied to anything to act mm-hmm. as an agent. So, a lot of the time, it's sprayed on paper, sent in as letters, and the letters are then cut up. And you know, a size of paper the size of your fingernail goes for about five pounds in prison. Wow. So, it's, uh, it's a massive, massive market, as is tobacco in prison now that it's uh, since the smoking ban came in. Is smoking ban in prison? Do they let you smoke in prison? Though? No, you used to be allowed, but in two, it happened while I was in prison the first, um, first year year or so my sentence I was able to smoke and then in 2018 I think it was early 2018 the smoking ban came in so mm. now tobacco is contraband as well and again it's just made a made a black market so mm. like an ounce of tobacco which cost like 13 to 15 pounds outside yeah but when I left prison it was going for like three four hundred pounds that's crazy but that's what they do on the outside as well they create this black market like you know we talk about this knife crime and 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 gangs and all of that kind of stuff and there's so much stuff underpinning it including the exclusion the mental health and whatever those Mm. kids have been through but also if drugs were legal they wouldn't i'm sure they'd find something else to 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 work out but you know you you would just go and get your your weed or whatever from the local corner shop there's demand solid supply it's simple it doesn't matter if it's illegal or not if there's money to be made on it and there's a a hell of a lot of money to be made on it it's going to be there so spice in terms of spice and the effects that it has on people it's wild Mm. isn't it like it's it's really insane yeah what kind of stuff did you see I mean, initially, when you first start smoking spice, it, it's um, it's a synthetic cam- cannabinoid which is made by trying to create like a replica of how cannabis affects the body. But of course, by doing that, you're you're changing a lot about it, so it becomes much more psychoactive, hallucinogenic. Um, it's a bit like being stoned, but really kind of a lot trippier for those that haven't taken drugs. It's just really sedating. But then all the mental the mental stuff comes in, like paranoia, delusions, mm. and especially for me. So I've got bipolar disorder, which means that you know my emotions are very unstable and go all over the place. And I was on no medication at the time, and spice kind of amplified that to the point where I had like a manic episode in prison. Um, I got really paranoid, lost touch with reality. Um, and I, you know, I've seen some horrific things because of drug debts and stuff in prison, and not to mention self harm and suicides and. Mm. So I'd be on the phone to Elliot and he wasn't even aware he was on the phone to me. And then he'd suddenly come back again and start get, getting paranoid about what I was doing and who I was speaking to. And nothing had changed. The only thing that had changed is that he'd started smoking spice. Mm. That's, that's so cool. Is there anything that they're doing? Is there any programs in prison at the moment where they're specifically dealing with spice? <clears throat> yeah, it's starting to, they're starting to become more of an awareness around it. But, you know, it can be difficult to access those kinds of courses in prison. You know, mm. for one, there's waiting lists. Two, you get transferred quite a bit as well. So by the time you get to the top of a list for counselling or classes, you're going to get shipped out to another prison. Um, and also, you know, short staff, um, lockdowns, just the instability of the prison 
system and the nature of it means that it can be difficult to access the right help that you need mm. um, by the time some people access it you know it, a lot of the time it's too late you know, some people don't get it this actually relates to us sorry we've been speaking for god knows how long now and i haven't even like gone down to the form because <laughs> this relates really well to our to our first question so i just want to stop at this point and say mm. we'll, we'll get on to the questions because when i said that you guys will come in i asked my followers if they had anything that they wanted to ask you and so we've got a whole a whole list of questions but i wanted to actually just speak about so when i contacted lisa to say i love you guys would love to do a podcast with you um she put i think you shared my page on your page mm. and then i think that you got some messages from people who were like all oh, be careful she's very hard lying on prisons and dating prisoners and yeah. all of that kind of stuff and i suppose i want to sort of clarify my my position on that because I, yes i am actually quite hard line on on some not hard line necessarily i don't i don't ever come from a place of, of lack of empathy but my, so my my position in terms of prisons and stuff like that is i was going out with somebody who turned out to be a crack addict uh, and his crack addiction led him to doing ridiculous fucking things and then as a result of that he ended up going to prison he got a 12 year sentence for attempted murder and at the time i was completely in love with him and didn't even mm. question whether i would stay with him throughout that you know i was i was young um <clears throat> and and that was just it you know i was assuming he was going to do six years anyway and so that was fine i can ride through that and then as a result of of all of that experience that i had with him i mean I, it was like grieving when 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 i when they gave him that sentence my my it felt like he died and mm. i i was i was i was really going through grief and then I contacted the prisoners' families helpline. I don't know if they still exist. Yeah, um, they do. Yeah. They're a brilliant organisation. And I contacted them, had a big chat with them over the phone, and then I asked whether I could come and volunteer. So I started volunteering for the prisoners' families helpline, and um, from that I would then went into Holloway uh, Women's Prison, and I was doing work uh, with trying to build relationships with mums and their children. So like helping faci to facilitate uh, things in the mm. visitors' centre. And then I went on to work for um, Jane St Giles Trust. Yeah. yeah, I went on to work for them in Brixton Prison, um, and I was doing resettlement. Um, so. And then I nearly got kicked out of there because then when they found out that I was at that time in a relationship with a serving prisoner, they thought that I was doing something dodgy. Yeah. Um, but that that was all, all okay. Anyway, my relationship with him ended, um, but I continued to have this focus on and this real professional interest in in prisons and prisoners. I wrote my dissertation on the needs of female prisoners living with HIV. Um, so I've always had this kind of interest. So so yeah so i guess for my background and, and my experiences when a lot of women will message me and they'll say i've started chatting to a guy he's in prison i've never met him before he's a friend of a friend my friend posted my picture on instagram and he replied and it turns out he's in prison and and actually we've got a really great connection and a really great bond and what you know sh sh should i become his girlfriend or whatever i've never met or blah, blah, blah. and my view on on that is always very much like what the fuck are you doing like there's lots of people out here who are not in prison at the moment and for you to get involved with somebody who you've never met and potentially ride through that sentence with them for what reason i don't know if it's meant to be wait till they come out you know mm. i always feel like i have to look at it from from me like i feel like i wasted a lot of years even though it was really good for me because it took me to a place in my career that i needed to be and all of that but i also feel like going out with a crack addict was not the right 
thing for me. Um, potentially putting my life on hold for all those years was not the right thing for me. And so I've seen the pitfalls and I've seen the bad things that can happen as a result. And so my first thing is always going to be, if somebody says, I'm, I've been with my man for five years and he's going to jail, my, my response is going to be different if you say to me, I've just met this prisoner, should I go out with him? My answer is always going to be, I don't think that's the greatest idea you've ever had, but... You know, so, so yeah, so I wouldn't say I'm hard line necessarily, but there's some things that I'm hard line on. We cleared this up well, yeah. after we had a bit of a chat about it. I, I was up for talking to you, whatever your views were, because yeah. it's in, sometimes we talk to people who totally agree on where we're, where, we're, where we're coming from. Sometimes they don't know anything about it. Sometimes totally opposing is important to talk to everyone, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, mm. I think that some of the criticisms that people can come with when you are speaking on topics like this is that people feel like the victims are being forgotten about i think when people when you talk about resettlement and um reducing likelihood of offending by making sure that people have really good lives when they come out of prison that's the best way to keep everybody safe is 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 to make sure that that we look after prisoners actually and not demonize them but then the problem is that you, you a lot of people will come and say but what about the victims you're talking about murderers you're talking about rapists do you do you, do you find that on your account that you get that i think it's important to say that 70 percent of people in prison are in for non-violent offenses so mm -hmm. like murderers and rapists and you know people in for gbh abh even common assault any kind of offense against a person you know which is violent is 30 percent of those in prison so actually a majority of people we're not talking about no but you know we could talk about a burglary and i have you know m my my grandma was burgled and it was devastating to her and so mm. there was no violence involved whatsoever but she lost all the memories of her sister and her husband who died yeah. and she never felt safe in her home ever again course, so whilst we you know burglary might seem like a, a, you know it's not an offense against the person but the impact that that can have on the victim is is, is huge in, in in some circumstances but who would you want living in your community would you want someone who had been treated badly by the system hostile resentful further criminalized yeah the point where they're probably going to commit more burglaries and potentially more dangerous or some Somebody who had the time, care and support put in to help them function, contribute and thrive in society to the point where, you know, I think you mentioned it earlier, they're going to be, you know, in a supportive environment when they get out to the point where they're not just being closely monitored. I mean, even if that is part of it, but they're they're able to have places to turn if they if they feel like um their choices are limited, which is how I felt when I got out of prison, you know. And also the majority of people in my experience, I've met a lot of burglars, commercial and domestic. Um, a hell of a lot and the majority of them were addicted to drugs yeah. and were only burgling to fund a habit yeah. so again we're looking at the symptom as opposed to the root cause yeah you know yeah and I mean I couldn't agree more I, I, I genuinely believe that but I think that's certainly people who I think we come from this really weird perspective in this country which is just like lock them up throw away the key mm. but actually the sentences don't match that nobody's keys getting thrown away very few people are going to go in prison and never come out mm. you know most of them will be coming out again yeah. and our hope has got to be that those people are able to not offend again and, and yeah. that's the only way to keep people safe is to treat them as humans and and to to, to yeah to help them to to get rid of whatever it was that caused the offending in the first place we get a lot of people stepping forward on our page saying what about the victims shouldn't you uh, provide a voice for these 
people too and I don't think it's the right place to have all of those voices at the same time and also there's different senses of being a victim as well so we do specifically focus on people who have been in prison who we also believe are victims to yeah. a certain degree the thing is it's so complex you know just as with crime there's a broad spectrum of different kinds of offences and defenders there's also a broad spectrum of victims you know I could argue that I was a victim of crime because I was a drug addict and the crimes that I committed of drug dealing you could argue my victims are the people using the drugs well I was a person using the drugs mm. so am I a victim of a crime as well and it goes into this whole inception type thing yeah, of yeah. crime and victim so I don't think we can really sit here and look at it in such a black and white manner because it's so complex however what I would say is the important thing is that we're opening up a dialogue and without dialogue you can't reach these conclusions and understanding with understanding comes empathy with empathy comes progress and we're able to actually help everybody involved as opposed to this tribal thinking mm. you know what I mean yeah, yeah. also so I remember being in a time with Elliot where I didn't have a place where I could speak out or it's not always necessarily safe to speak out because you may be protecting yourself or others. There wasn't this place where I could connect. There was a lot of secret Facebook groups. Um, that was the only place that I was able to find people. And so I created this thing cre I created on Instagram um, and was developed by all of us um, was this thing that I needed and so so many people are stepping forward now saying that this is a really valuable community yeah but we're still having to hide away on a private group because every time um because papers like the Daily Mail get hold of a story and take it completely out of context mm. or a post just gets deleted and that's a really vital part of the story mm. um and we get accused for promoting drugs just because we're talking about mm. it, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, that is absolutely ridiculous. I think it's just such a, na a lack of, of knowledge in this area. And I think exactly as you say, like majority of people in prison are victims and have been victims. You know, it's really interesting. The thing that we do is is where, you know, we'll look at a, an eight-year-old who's being neglected and we'll, we'll feel so heartbroken. Like we want to care for that eight-year-old and look after them. Their parents haven't done it. Their parents might be addicts or whatever. Um, and, and we look at that eight-year-old and we just, we want to take care. But when that very same eight-year-old turns 18 and then takes drugs or sells drugs or does whatever they need to do to survive mm. we're suddenly like it's, it's, as you say very black and white about it they need punishment mm. but they're the same eight-year-old that needed care yeah you know so we, i think we have to look at you know, people who commit crimes as an extension of who they were as a child obviously there are differences like i don't believe that jimmy savile deserves any level of fucking anything because he even though we might be able to look back at jimmy savile's childhood and say i wonder what went on for jimmy but i think that there are some people where it's just like you, you know i i can't find many levels of sympathy with them you can explain things but you can't excuse a lot of things you know then and the thing is we don't ask for anything to be excused but like i said earlier by understanding things it helps us to not only prevent it happening again but um to help victims as much as possible in different kinds of crimes and yeah, just look at patterns and you know going into back into prisons now for me is as much about me helping me to evaluate my experience of the situation from a different perspective as it is about 
understanding humans, which is something I've always struggled with. Mm. You know, like when I was young, I looked around at other kids at school and I thought, I don't understand you. Like, you look fucking weird to me. Like, I don't get how you do this same shit day in, day out. Therefore, I need to find a way to cope with this lack of understanding that I'm feeling. You know, I never had any empathy for people. People, to be honest, still annoy me, you know, for, for stupid things. And it's okay to admit that. It's mm. okay to talk about that and say, look, do you know what? Not enough people in this society open up and say, look, life's hard, man. You have to work eight hours, rest eight hours. The other eight hours, you've got to spend cooking and <laughs> socialising and paying bills and doing this, that and the other. And people don't say enough, look, this shit's scary, yeah. you know? And so all of the stuff we're doing, isn't. it's not just limited to, to us trying to help those in prison. It's just about understanding humanity because ultimately I think the underlying thing is there's a massive lack of it. Yeah, and I think I think you do that really well. I do. Um, so let's go back to what, because you, you were talking about the system and, and things not being easy enough to access. So the first question says that my son is currently in prison. Since being in there, he's been diagnosed with ADHD, but they don't always give him his medicine. He had a fight and was segregated for a week and they mm. didn't give him meds at all for the whole week. He's tried to complain into landing staff and his key worker and has lodged complaints, but nothing has happened. At the moment, they give him just one instead of two tablets a day. And I know that prison officers have a really hard job, but I just hear constant stories about them being on power trips, not allowing showers and phone calls, etc. He's only 18, but they've given him no type of education since he's been in there. And I'm also finding it hard to support his siblings through it. <clears throat> is this is this a very common story that you find Medi medication in prison was always a touchy subject i mean i personally experienced you know being deprived of my mental health medication without being told why um after being locked up for an evening and later found out my prescription had run out which is kind of the doctor's duty to renew it you don't have to do anything when you're in prison it kind of gets renewed automatically <clears throat> but yeah you never kind of get access to it immediately you have to put an application in to see someone then you have to see them then they have to make a an assessment and it's quite a long-winded process and yeah a lot of the time officers can stand in the way of that process but there's good and bad in every every role there were some officers that went out of their way to help me there were some that went out of their way to hinder me um you were running around your cell he had a phone in his cell at the time um in hmp Thames, it, yeah. Right, yeah um and he was just running around, around. Well, all i could here was the call button you know you press this button for help and it was just going off and going off he had to and he ended up rubbing soap into it to dull the noise he was like when am i gonna get my medication just going around and around in circles and you feel helpless there's nothing you can do i tried to call the prison you know there's several mm. several things you can try to do but it's ineffective it's, usually it's kind of frustrating because i witnessed a lot of the time prisoners being unable to access the right medication or help that they needed um, and as a result of that kicking off about it understandably but then the officers would then react to them kicking off in the same way they'd react to anyone kicking off you know so this young man that we're talking about here who's had a fight it might be just a manifestation of his frustration and the fact he's not on the right medication mm. however all they do again they're treating the symptom the symptom being kicking off with someone yeah you know yeah um I mean, I would say you can talk to the independent monitoring board, the IMB, who are very good at uh, singling out cases and, and giving prisoners the right representation that they need. It's quite concerning considering he's a young man. You Do know, you think that there's any difference, like if in terms of medication for physical health, if somebody had cancer or diabetes or something, are they as lax as they are with mental health medication? Yeah. They are. Yeah. So potentially people are at really serious health risks I'll, I'll probably i think there was two or three people i met during my whole sentence who passed away because they weren't receiving the right medication that's so 
the guy with the alcohol yeah yeah so a guy I knew called Tommy he um, he was an alcoholic and he was detoxing from alcohol I saw him I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday during the week went out on the exercise yard he looked like really like yellow and bloated his skin looked all like blotchy and stuff and the next day we were on lockdown and I found out it's because Tommy died and the day before he was telling us how they weren't giving him the right medication that he knew that he needed and yeah he, he, he passed away there was other people who they died because they rang their emergency bell in the cell when they were having some kind of health condition and those emergency bells are supposed to be answered immediately they're for medical emergencies but they often go hours without being answered um and yeah, people just aren't getting the medication that they need, the healthcare. Prisoners do get substandard healthcare. And I don't mm. think there's an excuse for that, whatever your stance is. No, there is. isn't. No, there isn't. If they're lucky enough to have family, then I would say family speaking out about this as much as possible. Um, mm. e- on social media, anywhere where you can, speak out about it. Um, because people need to know because it's hidden away, isn't it, often? Mm. Mm. But that, as I say, a lot of these people haven't got families, so... yeah. I mean, it's so sad because this 18-year-old, when I, I spoke a bit to the mum in, in the DMs and she said, he's, it's, it's right that he's in prison. He should be in prison. For what he did, he deserves mm. to be in prison. But prison should be a rehabilitative process. Mm. It makes absolutely no sense to throw this 18-year-old in, into a locked cell just to punish him for his crime. What's the fucking point? Because he's going to come out worse than what he was when he when he went he is, in. Yeah. You have the opportunity here. You've got somebody locked up for however long it is. You have the opportunity to give them skills to really make a change in their life so that they can come out and do better. And cuts austerity, the fucking Tories you know all of this stuff has contributed to prison being far less productive than it even was 20 years ago especially because the privatization of prisons means Mm. that they're not retaining prison staff prison officers used to be you know they'd be in the job for 20 you know 40 years until they retired Mm. they were they were you know they were they weren't always necessarily good or bad but now you get very young people who are just coming they've come in from asda their job at asda or morrison's and they're just doing it because it's local to them they can get 25 grand a year or whatever you know the pay is not good enough for prison officers that you know if if, if we spoke to prison officers they're in a really having a terrible fucking time as well Mm. but there are a lot of them are just five months on the job they don't know what the fuck they're doing they don't have any understanding of 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 prison life or addiction or any of those things i mean it's a a mess i mean on one wing obviously in hmp Thameside, there was um there's a couple of prison officers who worked on my wing regularly one of them was 19 and one of them was 21 and one day i think they were both on on the wing and it's supposed to be like two or three of them per wing to like a wing of like you know 100, 100 prisoners mm. how, how is a 19 year old guy and a 21 year old girl gonna handle 100 prisoners who have got all kinds of complex needs yeah even in the visits hall when you get a 19 year old shouting at you to part when you've been longing for this touch for ages just mm. a stroke on the cheek and I would see Elliot relaxing into his seat after being really tense and we'd feel better and they're like Time to part, take it, shouting mm. as if it's this stereotype that they've got out of some yeah. film or somewhere. <laughs> and I just look at them saying, like, thinking you just don't understand the complexities of what you're doing right mm. now. I understand you don't trust anyone in here, um, but a stroke on the cheek, come on. Yeah. I mean, they're probably just starting to go out to clubs and see people getting hammered and, and having proper fights and, and, and going, you know, they're probably just getting to grips with life. I yeah. would argue they don't understand the complexities of the human condition enough to be in that kind of role. No, and I think anyone who doesn't even take time to try to do that mm. shouldn't even be doing that job. I don't think a prison officer's role should just be simply to guard people to stop them escaping. I think it's so much more than that because of what they could achieve if they do that job 
really well, we could really achieve systemic change and changes for people inside. But if you are just literally there to get paid and stop people from doing bad things, then you're really inherently failing at what could be a, an amazing job. Do you know, the uh, the Prison Reform Trust reported that in 2016 to 17, 40%, so 40% of prisoners inspected had inadequate or absolutely no training for mm. prison officers to know when to refer someone for mental health support. Now, that's crazy. You know, the amount of prisons that I spent time in, that that was the case where prison officers just had no awareness of mental health issues and knew when to refer somebody you know there's such a prevalence of mental illness in our prisons but the people the frontline staff the officers who those in prison will deal with the most don't actually know the signs or what to look for when someone is suffering a serious health issue yeah well it's like a it's like a production line now isn't it because yeah. the job is so shit especially because of things like spice and really having to deal with people mm. who are wild and out of control you know to keep somebody in that job for a long time is, is very difficult and so you're just constantly got new staff new staff is mm. it's, it's setting people up to fail there was one prison officer that always looked out for people in the visits hall and um I saw him having a cigarette behind this building and Elliot was leaving that prison soon or you'd already left, I'm not sure. And I said, hi, I just wanted to read you something off of the Instagram and I read him a post that Elliot had written about him and he just smiled and said, this is why I'm doing it. And I said, I haven't met a prison officer like you. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still not into the idea of prison officers locking people up, but that's a whole different podcast, right? Mm. Um, uh but the smile on his face and me reading that to him when I had a real kind of hatred for prison officers at the time, um, there was something there in that exchange that was quite special. Yeah, that's really important. And he'll probably retire soon. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like that, that you need those people yeah. who would do it for the right reasons and you've been there for a long time. I'll be time. glad if he retires soon. He's only about 33. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, you put a request in and he'd be honest with you. That's what you need is honesty in that situation. Not, yeah, maybe in a few days yeah, or I'll see what I could yeah. do. An officer who just goes, that's not going to be possible or... I'm going to sort I mean, that out. It's what you, you want from everyone, isn't it? You want people just to be direct. Compa yeah, well, you know, yeah, exactly. Do what they say and say what they mean. Yeah, you know? exactly. I think it's interesting what you say about locking people up because I agree with you that actually the punishment that we've given you is a loss of your liberty. We shouldn't be further punishing you no. inside. No, it's not a free tier punishment, is it? It's no, like, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it actually should just be we're taking away your yeah. liberty, but everything that you are entitled to on the outside, like good healthcare and mm. education and, and rights, that should remain. Yeah. It shouldn't be we're going to take away your liberty and we're going to treat you like utter shit to make mm. you learn your lesson because mm. that's not how we learn lessons it doesn't work like that <laughs> doesn't work like that um so the next question says do prisoners receive enough support when released no no <laughs> they don't i think about a third of prisoners are released homeless uh, a lot of people get short sentences which aren't enough time to do any courses or learn anything or, or to help them out but is enough time to disrupt their life and so they lose their flats and lose their homes you know yeah um i think at the moment, almost half of prisoners released do reoffend within the first year, and it's even higher for those with short sentences. So, yeah, there's massive failings. A lot of it came from probation being privatised, which mm. thankfully is going is going to be renationalised. I think this year uh, it's being rolled out across the country, and you know we need it because probation's done. Probation has no 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 real say unless you're a high risk offender, which a lot of offenders aren't. 
Um, they don't really help with housing. They don't help with jobs, employment. All it is is to manage your risk in the community. Yeah, it's um, only if you're a mapper that then yeah, they can yeah, yeah. then start to do all that kind of stuff. So, the, so probation was separated into two. It was the C- CRC. Yeah, CRC and um, the National Probation Service. Yeah, yeah, and and you're right. Um, but basically, it was just a kind of monitoring thing rather than yeah. actually setting people up with, with, with something that again is going to make it less likely that they're going to harm mm. other people or themselves. Because that's what I did when I was working for St Giles Trust was that I was working with people whose sentences were 12 months or less yeah. to try to get them to make sure that just, you know, in the weeks leading up to their um, uh, release, starting to reconnect them with their families, make sure that their benefits were in place, make sure that they had somewhere to, to live. And those, you know, the, the statistics spoke for themselves, that those people who'd received that service and who'd had that support mm. to, to get them something to go out to, the the, the likelihood of them reoffending was reduced massively. Yeah. If you just throw someone out of prison, back onto the into the exact same life that they were in before, what, well, you know, what do we think is going to happen? Mm. Also, we've got no support or very little support for families. If only I'd had some people say to me, this is what it's going to be like. This is what's going to happen. This is going to be a huge strain on you financially, emotionally. Um, It already has been before prison, during prison, after prison. I did not know what to expect. And often you're dealing with a whole load of PTSD from kind of prison traumas that... Mm you weren't prepared for yeah but that was one of the questions actually which was that how can you support someone who's come out of prison when they're dealing with ptsd from experiences inside because that must happen you must become traumatized inside as well yeah i mean yeah i saw so much stuff that is so it's really quite traumatizing to see you know probably on par with some things some soldiers would see on the battlefield you know people getting you know cheeks sliced open all kinds of stabbing slashings extreme self-harm suicide attempts you know extreme violence and death and bullying and all kinds of things but mainly being locked in a cell and removed from society Mm. what that does to your you mentally Mm is enough to deal with. It's a with. trauma itself, yeah. Yeah, and also the people trying to support people through a prison sentence. I felt so much trauma during that time and mm. I wasn't even locked up because mm. you're feeling addiction in prison. You're feeling them feeling insecure and trying to make sure everything's all right. You're feeling and experiencing all that stuff. Yeah. I would say if someone is suffering with... Yeah, with that post-traumatic stress from their experience in prison, the best thing to do is, is, is treat it as you would any other kind of issue, you know, with, with um, empathy and understanding and compassion and, and, and discussing it. and Education. Education. Yeah. You know, get, get some education around it. Find out what the causes are. Talk about it. You know, what what is it that is traumatised you? What actually yeah. went on? Let's dig deeper. Let's, let's get behind that. Why did it happen? Who was involved? You know, what was the reasons behind it? What was your part in it? Did you have a part in it? You what know? do you need? Seek out alternative therapies, Mm. you know seek out what you would with any other condition Mm. Mm. yeah i mean i think it's exactly the same as you say dealing with somebody who's got ptsd from anything is just about having an understanding encouraging them to seek support and letting them know that professional support is available if they want it i know that some of the things that you know what what women that i've spoken to who've slept next to men who've been in prison is that they'll often find in the night they might wake up freaking out about things or i've i had a friend actually whose partner used to uh punch her he'd wake up automatically and he'd punch her because if she tried to touch him or whatever because he was so alert 
to be ready to protect himself in prison. It's um, not only that, it's not being used to sharing a bed. So Elliot will often knee me up the bum, elbow me in the head. And, and he's a big guy. I feel like I should be wearing shin pads and helmets. <laughs> Protective gear to bed. Yeah. But he'd have other strange habits, like just getting up in the middle of the night to go and have lots of biscuits at yeah, 2, 3 a.m. He'd get really hungry. Tins you, of tuna at 3 in the morning. Yeah, because you can do anything that... Anything you want. No so routine. these, yeah, the routine is, it's prevalent in their lives in other ways. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, what what is the question that came up over and over again that I think particularly women who date in prisoners are quite interested in is is there a lot of sex in prisons? Uh, no, 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 there's not. I mean, this whole joke, isn't it? You know, don't drop the soap and whatever. And like for one, you're making light of of rape. Mm. we were discussing this on the way we've been yeah how there's always that joke it is about rape Mm. that joke and how is it how is it how is that funny why is that okay to joke about male rape you know and the other side of it is I didn't see um, any men in homosexual relationships in prison you know it wasn't anything that I witnessed obviously before going to prison I had this preconceived idea based on what like American media has has fed us Mm. and there was none of that happens quite a lot in women prisons yeah they form relationships with with other women I've heard that Julia Howard calls it gay for the stay that's it yeah (laughs) so it's not common like that in in, in male prisons what one of my mates who's just come out he did a a seven year sentence he said that sex with female prison officers is very prevalent I I don't know about very prevalent it happens but um, again I didn't I wasn't aware of it, you know, I, I saw guys flirting with female prison officers, but as far as I was aware, no one actually got caught doing it. In fact, before my sentence, it happened at one prison I was at, but during my sentence, I didn't see it. In fact, when you come to the end of your sentence and you go to a low security prison, a DCAT, um, an open prison, you're allowed, you know, day releases and home leaves and stuff to help you reintegrate. And that's when most prisoners, you know, that's what they work towards. And that's when they're going to have sex with their partners or whoever else, because mm. they're getting out of the prison grounds. Um, but as for you know within prison I didn't really see anything like that at all to be honest well, that's sure that's very reassuring for yeah. many of the women on the outside supporting yeah. <laughs> and as for visits you hear a lot of stories but we were never in a situation when we were able to do anything like that yeah uh, you hear about deca and sex on ground a lot of it is just prisoners gassing each other up and just it's making stuff up and it is it's, it's not some of it may be true it's not our experience yeah, yeah. Good. Next question says, is it a good idea to bring children to prison visits? So I've been asking a lot of women who have got children. We haven't been able to have a child yet, um, their opinion on this. And it depends on the situation. It depends on the child. It depends on the relationship with the father before prison and also on his uh, mental health now, his behaviours now. Uh, It's just... I mean, the one, one lady has a child who has autism and the whole deal is too much. Another woman would say the neglect is too much, the absence, sorry, is too much. So 
yeah i mean i I, i've definitely i've got experience in this from from my professional career i used to have to write assessments prisons would write um to to get authorization from the local authority as to whether a child could come if they've got a particular it's not for every prisoner but if they've got particular um crime Mm. uh if they've done a particular crime then they will the, the local authority has to either authorize or not authorize the child coming in to to visit and I mean, there's a lot of factors that you have to look at. Obviously, the main thing is the crime. Mm. Is, is there anything that's likely to make that child unsafe within that prison setting? Mm. I mean, in, in, you know, visits themselves in visitor centres, it's highly unlikely that a child could come to harm. And some of the visitor centres are good. They've got little fenced off areas mm. with toys and mm. things like that. And so, you know, often especially the younger children, they might not even really understand that they're going to a prison. They're just mm. going to go and see daddy and mm. all the men are wearing Doesn't the same feel outfit. Like an unsafe place. It's not. Visits hall. It's full of love usually. But yeah. the, the other side of it though is the process that they face when they go into the prison. There is that. Yeah. And it's a very intimidating process. And, mm. uh, you know, they, they want to look, in, as particularly with children, they want to look in the nappy. Yeah. They want to look in the buggy. They mm. want to look in the bottle. They want to do all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean... I, th- I think it's it's for, for me it's always about a whether that's actually going to benefit the child if you've got a child of a certain age who's actually going to be scared you know because some children are going to be more aware of why people might be in prison and if they're going to freak out at the fact that they might be sitting next to a terrorist or or whatever and if, if that's going to cause them deep anxiety then I wouldn't um recommend that and the, the other situation i wouldn't recommend it in is if they're not likely to have any form of relationship with their father or mother or whoever it is when they get out because some people's crime offenses dictate that they will never be able to have mm. a, a relationship with with their child um even you know some people aren't even allowed to have um super uh, uh, supervised in which case you just say no because mm. what is the point in creating a bond in this safe environment and then when dad gets out you're never going to be able to see him anyway mm. but i think that if you want your child to have a, a, a an ongoing relationship with the parent who's in prison then i think that you should encourage visits if that's in the best interest of the child mm-hmm. yeah. and like you said dependent on their individual needs there's some odd things that go on though i was watching a child come through being searched and the prison officer going have you been good raise your arms turn around and doing this whole thing and i just thought they need to revise how they're doing Mm. that that would only be particular officers but i saw it a lot as if have you been bad otherwise yeah. you're going to end up here as well mm. and i wasn't because it's only bad well. people that go to prison surely. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um can do, so one of the, we had lots of questions about relationships and, and and all of that kind of stuff and around having relationships with drug addicts what what are the effects on relationships and can you ever have a good relationship with a drug addict or or i, I guess we could extend it to any type of addict uh yeah you, you, short answer is yes, you can have a good relationship with an addict. The long answer is um, probably not. You mm. know, like you can, but you know, there's loads of stuff to throw Depends into. Depends what they're addicted to, what, where yeah. they are. Like our relationship was really good at the beginning, but as the addiction progressed, Elliot's addiction, yeah. it wasn't good anymore. Don't get it twisted. I've had periods of functionality in my addictions. You know, where I've had promotions at jobs. You know, where I've held down stable relationships, where I've even gone on holidays and stuff. You know. Um, but I've also had periods of complete unmanageability, chaos and danger in my addictions, you know, where I've been kidnapped and, you know, I've, I've been in dangerous situations. So it, it highly depends on, on that individual circumstance and and what's going on. I mean, obviously there's stuff you have to take into account and ultimately the goal 
should be to not be with somebody who is living a chaotic life, whether they're addicted to drugs or not. Mm. You know, you might as well ask, can I have a stable relationship with a human being? Can I can I have a good, healthy relationship with a person? Mm. Again, there's no straight answer, is there, no, really? No. So many variables in it, you can't give a straight answer. No, and I think, I think the thing about addiction is that there's just so many features of it that really do impact on a relationship. So mm. with finances and, and, and things like that, you know, you'll often find that addicts will be stealing from their partners mm-hmm. um, at which creates a massive lack of trust um, and often uh, one of the biggest things that I've noticed with addiction is that they start arguments in order to justify going out and yeah. taking whatever it is that they want to do mm. so my dad is is a real big example of this he will just literally kick off he will create an argument out of nothing yeah, so that he can yeah. then go fuck this and then he feels justified in walking out the door and straight to the betting shop mm. so I think that happens a lot in relationships with addicts is that you never quite know where you are or what's going on yeah. because you don't know what's reality why have they just started on me like what's yeah, going you on you feel responsible for upsetting them you feel like it's your fault for them going out using you feel lonely because they've, they haven't come back for two days mm. you sit around you're sick with worry it someone said to me are you ready for this because this is going to be the dark you will never know darkness like this mm. and it's constant it's continual this is someone else who was addicted to heroin and they were right I'd never known it before in my life and my mental health dropped significantly. Yeah. Mm. And I think it's really difficult to feel like you come second to something that is so awful, something that's so destructive, but you almost feel that they love it more than you. Mm. Um, when you turn over in bed and they're not there and you know they're in the front room preparing a hit and they're going to be laying down in the front room and not with you, that's when it started to really hit home yeah. and... The absence speaks louder than anything. The biggest thing that I learned from <clears throat> going to Gamblers Anonymous was that um, you have to allow an addict to hit rock bottom because everything that you do to enable them just keeps cushioning the addiction. But allowing somebody that you love to hit rock bottom is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think I think that's one of the biggest challenges is to actually see that allowing them to hit rock bottom that you are doing that with love. I don't always agree with it because sometimes that rock bottom is death. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of problems in, in in the recovery rooms that I... It works for some people and it doesn't work for other people. Uh, I believe that I left just because of my own well-being. Mm. Um, it wasn't to allow him to have his rock bottom because there was nothing that was going to part me from but him. But was that rock bottom time. for you, the fact that she left did that feel like rock, that that was rock bottom listen when i hit rock bottom i get a drill out to go further mm. i've had loads of rock bottoms um for me the concept of rock bottom is not so much about losing everything and being at a place where you're hopeless and and, and you've got a gift of desperation it's more about the fact that you're understanding that you know there are consequences and the pain of using drugs becomes more than the pain the reason why you started using them in the first place if that makes sense yeah yeah so it's all about this 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 tipping of the scales more than an actual circumstance or an event you know it's more of a process Mm. um so like lisa said rock bottom can be death sometimes it's it's not always advisable to say right you know what let them fuck everything up and kill themselves and then they'll be okay because no i agree not necessarily the case however you do have to allow somebody addicted 
to feel the consequences and not be enabled. And I think that's the key, isn't it? Yeah. It's not enabling them because I think when you're in a relationship with an addict, you have a relationship with an addict, you don't want it, you know, like for my dad, for example, if we didn't pay his rent, mm. he would be on the streets and then we stopped paying his rent yeah. and he was a rough sleeper. Mm. And we had to get he had to be at that point and it was a very difficult thing i had to separate myself from that thing of feeling like i caused my dad to be a rough sleeper no my dad caused himself yeah. to be a rough yeah. sleeper mm-hmm. he's no longer rough sleeping and that that was his rock bottom mm. and if we had continued to cushion him he would have never have got there mm. and we would have just been stuck in this fucking cycle and although he's not completely healed he is in a much better place he's now you know his finances are sorted a bit a bit more mm. there's a lot of confusion confusion around enabling and these are the messages that i get mostly am i enabling yeah it's very it's very confusing do you think if you're, you're paying it? for their drugs that you're enabling yes 100 percent. and Often if they're happy um, you're enabling. in addiction, <laughs> you're enabling. Yeah. If they're happy with you. Right. <laughs> That's a very interesting way of looking at it. One thing that we are doing is trying for a baby at the moment. And I feel like prison has took, because I'm 42 now, I feel like it took a lot, those last possible fertile years. Oh, you need to um, listen to my podcast about um, fertility. There's a lot on that. Okay, and we need to talk. Yeah, then. you're nowhere near the... 42 is fine don't worry that's good (laughs) I've got yeah I did a whole podcast about it it's a really interesting one actually but yes I think that's a really interesting point actually which is that you know those years are taken not just from you Mm. but your partner has been punished as well as a a result which is why I often give that advice to women who don't know these prisoners Mm. and who are trying to get involved with them like don't put yourself through a sentence that you don't need to go through with someone that you haven't even got an emotional bond with yet Mm. like what's Mm. What's the point? You know, it's not easy to date a prisoner. It's not easy to go through that. You experience, as you said before, the offshoot of all of the stuff that he's going through. And Mm. and to commit to doing that, I think that you have to already have an established... There has to be a reason for you to want to put yourself through that trauma. There's this fairy tale that starts happening in your head because they're writing you letters, they're drawing pictures of you, they're writing you poems. You may never have experienced this kind of romantic situation before. Everything's all on you. Your picture is on their wall maybe 10, 20 times. They're calling you at all times. You feel so important and yeah. you're excited every time they hear you hear from them. It's unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah. How do you... This picture doesn't happen on the outside. When you came out of prison, our relationship was very different. It went to a different kind of level. Mm. Um, but a lot of people leave their the partners that stayed with them throughout of prison. This is a very common thing. And this is, again, a war- kind of warning that I give to you. It's one of the questions, actually, that somebody wrote, which was that do men tend to write to multiple women and have visits from lots of different people who believe that they are the one? Because I've heard this story so many times. You get that fairy tale. You get mm. that intensity, the, the dream of being together. And then when they come out, you can fuck off because I'm back to the woman who I was and with. the fool is hard. Yeah. It's so hard. You see it on a lot of the forums. <clears throat> They're like, I stuck with him. And then where is he? The is thing it- is, I don't think it's a question of um, prisoners doing that. I think it's a question of people doing mm. that. You know what I mean? I, I would argue that men probably do it just as much in society outside of prison as they do in prison. I mean, if anything, the majority of guys I met in prison didn't have um, partners to write to. The ones that did, the majority of them were faithful and weren't writing to multiple women or men, whatever. And um, 
you know, there were guys in there that were writing to multiple women and were being unfaithful. However, they weren't the majority, mm. um, if I'm honest. However, they're probably the ones that you do hear about the most because it's just something we got to the doctors. We never got to the doctors and say, hi, doc, just want to check in and let you know everything's fine. Yeah. You know, that news doesn't travel. That news doesn't spread. It's when things go tits up mm. and, and someone does wrong you that you go online on a forum and say, oh, guess what's happened? This fucking scumbag, you know? Yeah, so yeah. that's why we hear so much of it. We It's made our relationship really strong because we have got through that and we were able to, to do that together and stay faithful. Mm. there are a lot of relationships out there that are working after prison and they are really strong too so and people enter into long distance relationships as well don't they yeah people meet people online on bloody games or on dating websites or whatever or, or people might move away for work or yeah you know whatever it is you know people we're capable of, of building deep and long-lasting connections with other human beings despite many circumstances that would suggest that a relationship is doomed you know we're quite tenacious creatures we're quite determined and when it comes to emotions a lot of the time they drive our behaviors mm. and you know i don't think it's right to say that it's, it's always a going to be a negative experience because as we've established time and time again throughout this whole discussion it just ain't black and white like yeah that. exactly it's, very, it's just very different having a relationship within a prison system to it how it will be outside yeah that change is maybe what a lot of people can't cope with mm-hmm. yeah so the last question that we're going to touch on if we can answer it quickly it says that my nine-month-old son's father is a crack addict he's currently waiting to see if he's been approved for his second stint in rehab he has hardly seen him in months partly because he doesn't bother but partly because when he does he's abusive and paranoid but am i wrong should i push for them to have a relationship his mum is an ex-addict 25 years clean and manipulates me saying that they will lose their bond if i don't support and encourage them to have a relationship first and foremost you have to keep everyone safe the child um yourself even the addicts you know everyone has to be kept safe in those kind of situations mm-hmm. um because unfortunately those kind of issues do come with a lot of dangerous behaviors especially crack cocaine you know yeah. i suffered so much because of it as did lisa um so yeah first and foremost make sure everyone's safe secondly if he's waiting to go into rehab then i would say you know support his decision love him from a distance if he is still in addiction because like i said it's so disruptive and damaging to everyone involved um I would say now is probably not the right time to try to develop a healthy relationship if that person is not in a healthy state of mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you grew up with an addict's parent, mm-hmm. so I mean, I guess you can see that from from both perspectives the, the perspective of the child, but also now you as an adult. Yeah. Well, my mother never wanted me to be around her when she was using drugs. I saw a bit of drinking, maybe saw her once a year, if that. And I think she kept her distance because she didn't want me to be around any of that. But I felt that absence. Mm. And that's a whole other kind of thing to deal with, isn't it? But maybe I would have turned to using drugs if I was around her a bit more. Mm. Who knows? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Psychologically, there's quite a lot of people that have been raised with or not raised with parents who were addicts but then go on to get addicted because they need to experience whatever it was that was so strong for their parent that stopped their parent being able to love them Mm. that's exactly it when Elliot started using in front of me and I'd never seen it before I started from one end of the house didn't really want much to do with it I just wanted him to be in the house to be sat right next to him curious wanting to smell it wanting to feel it 
wanting to be with him in it mm. and he caught me trying to work out how to use um a foil you know chase the dragon in the bathroom and yeah i was i was too curious yeah. it became too familiar in the house mm. so what what is this about my mother that took her away it's exactly what you said yeah yeah and and i think it, you know we have to consider it and whilst we have to you know hope that this man who is a crack addict can get to a point where he can be a really good dad i think at this point you know people who are addicted to crack in my experience will do whatever they need to do mm -hmm. and if that means oh can you watch my baby for a minute while i go off and just do this mm -hmm. they might not specifically sell their kid or something extreme mm -hmm. like that but they they are not going to you know they're not in the right state of mind. they're not in the right state, yeah. state of mind and anything can happen it's and I, it, a nine-month-old baby cannot verbalize to you that they don't feel safe when they're with dad yeah. and i would say that that i wouldn't even encourage this man i would leave the door open mm. and if if you can assess that he's not currently high and that he is okay then you could perhaps have supervised contact with mm. him um but i would never allow that child alone with with no. with, with that man ever um, and I, I wouldn't feel that you're doing anything wrong if you're not actively encouraging this relationship. I think mm. you leave the door open and when he's good and ready and he's able to yeah. prove that yeah. he's got himself into a particular, you know, a better state, then then you can reconsider. But I think at this point, the, the, the role is of protector, mm. you know, that's yeah. what she can do. All right. Well, I've kept you here long enough, and it's been uh, a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we could go on. We've got loads more questions, <laughs> but we're limited by parking and part two all, all of those. Day, we should do a part two, definitely. definitely I'm yeah. so impressed with the both of you. Uh, you know, you really you speak so eloquently and articulately about it all, and I think that nobody would be able to listen to this podcast and still take that mentality of "But what about the victims? Mm. You know, this is wrong." Um, because actually, everything that you're saying just is logical it makes complete and utter sense and i think we have to have compassion and humanity and treat people well and if we do then a they're less likely to go to prison in the first place and b when they come out they're less likely to re-offend so it just makes more sense for everybody to just be kind and mm. look at everybody's individual yeah don't look at them as their offense and or their addiction look at them as a, as a human and to support people who are supporting too without judgments yeah leave blue bag life alone for fuck's sake let them do their thing like if you don't agree unfollow scroll past exactly. leave it the fuck alone like and the same with my account please like <laughs> but yeah thank you very much for coming along if anybody wants to contact elliot or lisa they're at blue bag life and your ted talk when will that be available they said in spring so we're waiting for it to be edited i hope uh, i haven't yeah i'll sh share that when it when it comes mm. when it comes up that's great yeah, all right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye.